I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so... Do you get tired of hearing the same old intros to podcast episodes? I don't really, but Jen thinks you might. I'm Jenny, a listener from Los Angeles, testing out a new way for listeners to record the introductions to podcast episodes. There's no other resource out there quite like Your Parenting Mojo, which doesn't just tell you about the latest scientific research on parenting and child development, but puts it in context for you as well, so you can decide whether and how to use this new information. I listen because parenting can be scary, and it's reassuring to know what the experts think. If you'd like to get new episodes in your inbox along with a free infographic on 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one, sign up at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. You can also join the free Facebook group to continue the conversation. Over time, you might get sick of hearing me read this intro, so come and record one yourself. You can read from a script Jen's provided or have some real fun with it and write your own. Just go to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash record the intro. I can't wait to hear yours. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today we're going to close what has seemed to me to be a loose end for a very long time. It's almost like an uncomfortably hanging chad for those of you who are of a certain age who remember the 2000 Bush v. Gore election here in the US. Uh, so two years ago now, we talked to Dr. John Powell on the topic of how to stop othering and instead belonging. And that was about the ways that we create separation between us. And at the very, very end of that interview, I squeezed in a question about volunteering, which seemed to me to promote othering because it encourages the person who's volunteering to see themselves as a person with resources and the recipient as a person who needs help and who perhaps doesn't have anything useful to contribute to the relationship or more broadly. And so I came out of that interview feeling that volunteering wasn't really the answer to all of our problems, but not having any idea of what to do instead. And so fast forward two years and I actually can't remember how I discovered it, but at some point I heard the concept of mutual aid. And when I looked it up online, I found the book called Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next, which is an incredibly short, bold, readable book by our guest today, Professor Dean Spade. And so Dean holds a JD and is professor at Seattle University School of Law and has been working to build queer and trans liberation based in racial and economic justice for the past two decades. He's also the author of Normal Life, Administrative Violence, critical trans politics and the limits of law, as well as numerous videos, book chapters and articles. Welcome, Dean. It's great to have you here. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Diving into this, I guess it's kind of a mark of my privilege, I think, as a white middle class person somewhere north of the age of 40. And I'm just now discovering what mutual aid is for the first time. And so for those who are listening, watching this, who are in a similar boat to me, can you please help us by understanding what is mutual aid firstly, and then how is it different from volunteering and charity? Yeah. So the basic way that I define mutual aid is that if we think about all the work that social movements do, like all the kinds of tactics we use, you know, we have street protests and we block oil pipelines and we, you know, have lawsuits, we all these different tactics. It's the part of social movement work where we provide for each other's direct survival needs. And it's only mutual aid if we do that based in a shared understanding that it's the systems that have created the crisis that people are in rather than that the people are blameworthy for being in crisis. And the third element is that mutual aid 
always comes with an invitation to collective action. So if if we're doing a mutual aid project and we're providing like, you know, food and bottles of water and tents to people living in an encampment of unhoused people in our city, we're saying like, oh yeah, here, like grab a tent here, charge your phone. And also like, would you like to get involved in the group? Would you like to, you know, be part of this group? Would you like to come to this protest we're doing about housing policy? Would you like to be part of this protest we're doing in this landlord's house? Like, do you want to be part of our housing justice movement? And so you don't have to, to, to get this tent or this bottle of water, but like it invites people who are experiencing the crisis to join the you know collective action against the crisis. And so, you know, the reasons that that's different from charity are several. Charity slash social services, that's another term we might use for that. That whole model is, you know, it really originates in kind of a European model from a period of when like really significant changes were happening in terms of the economy of like, you know, clearing land so that wealthy people could like graze tons and tons of sheep and use the new looms that were being invented to make textiles. That whole period of kind of the shifting from mostly subsistence agriculture to different kinds of industry was a period where tons and tons of people were displaced from their land and there became like roving bands of like poor people who had nothing at all had lost like, you know, the thousands of years of way of living. And those people were like, you know, storming the towns and being like, hey, rich people, uh-uh, you know, like no way. And so in order to stabilize that situation where rich people could dominate those poor people and kind of keep them in line, they created like a charity system that included stuff like you had to go live in the workhouse and like be worked to death and included like alms to the poor type idea, you know, where like rich people give some amount of money to poor people in order to get into heaven. And all of that always came with a lot of strings attached, you know, like, oh, we only give it to like the good poor people and not the bad ones, like not the people who we see as like morally loose. We just give it to the, you know, the mothers with children whose husband died in the war, you know, whatever it is, right? So charity still has that model today. It's a model that um, is about stabilizing a system that keeps certain people rich and other people poor. It's a model that always has strings attached and a lot of like moral blame. Oh yeah, like you can get on the, on the wait list to maybe get a housing if you can prove you're sober, if you take the psych meds we think you should take, you need to have children or not have children, you need to you know, be a certain kind of person that's often tied to like ideas we have about who's moral and immoral. And there's a fundamental idea in charity that if you're poor or homeless or whatever, there's something wrong with you. You need to get sober. You need to take this budgeting class. You need to take this parenting class. It's like the charity system or social services system kind of like really controls and judges and sorts poor people, which in the U.S. specifically, especially like people of color, especially black people have been targets, indigenous people, migrants. So the charity system blames poor people, mutual aid blames the system, basically like diametrically opposed ways of thinking about like providing people's direct needs. Mutual aid work is about building huge resistance movements that could stop the conditions that make anybody have to be in crisis. Charity is about like kind of putting a Band-Aid on the existing crisis. And, you know, most people don't get what they need out of it, right? People are still like homeless in huge numbers. It's like, it's very minimal. It's like the least rich people can kick down or the government can kick down. It's crumbs that have like strings attached that are stigmatizing. Like it's humiliating the ways that people are forced to go through. Like homeless shelters, for example, are a lot like jails. You know, you have no privacy, you're being looked at, you, you know, just there's needless humiliation like built throughout the entire thing. People at public benefits will feel you know, the same thing, like this kind of like you have to turn your whole life over to these people. They're seeing whether or not you're good enough. They're looking for mistakes, you know, this kind of thing. So charity and mutual aid are really, really different. And I think in the U.S., most people haven't until 2020, haven't really heard of mutual aid. Partly charity is like the idea of volunteering that you referenced in your intro is usually a reference to charity. It's like, oh, on Thanksgiving, I'm going to go to the soup kitchen. It's like kind of like once a year or once every season or whatever, I plug into this thing. It's not really about the root causes of the problem. It's about kind of moral gesture 
in which I give a little something to the disadvantage or whatever. And like you said, that feeling you had about it, like, ugh, this seems like it's got a bad power dynamic. Look at me, I've got resources and I'm one of my luxury days off this week to help the, you know, got this kind of vibe that feels very, you know, or there's a Victorian or, you know, these early, even earlier European origins I'm talking about. And mutual aid is something different. It's like, we're in the struggle together. We are trying to build mutual aid projects where people who are directly in crisis right now are part of doing them and governing them instead of upper class people coming and giving something to poor people. So that's really different. I just want to say one other thing about this, which is mutual aid is also like written out of the history of social movements. So when we think about how we learn about social change, like, you know, um, you learn about the history of the civil rights movement is like probably the most famous sort of social movement in the U.S. or the farm workers movement or whatever. When you learn about social movements, we often learn about speeches that were given by men or laws that were passed or big cases that happened. Like that's kind of the vibe. And What's written out of that is that social movements aren't made of those moments. Those are movements that are usually happening towards the end, especially if it's like a law was passed or a court case. Like those are like the concessions that happen after huge organizing by large numbers of people who are actually the people in crisis. And that organizing is usually mutual aid. The on-ramp that most people take to get into social movement work is mutual aid. It's either I didn't have something I needed and these people were giving it out. And when I got there, they were like, you know, we don't think this is your fault. You shouldn't be ashamed. You want to join us? You want to fight? Or people get in because they're like, I was so mad this was happening to others, like maybe because it used to happen to me or because it happened to someone I loved or I saw it on the news. And I like, the first thing people want is like, I want to be part of helping others. I'm so mad this is happening. This is this beautiful instinct that people have. I want to help. And so mutual is the typical honor. People don't usually start by laying down, you know, in front of the coal train, you know, or like some other really bold action. People usually start their engagement with social movements in mutual aid. And mutual aid is kind of bulk. I'm reading this book right now for my gender sexuality and law class that I'm teaching this week. I have to be teaching this wonderful book that I love teaching called At the Dark End of the Street. It's by Danielle McGuire. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is a book about how most people think the civil rights movement was primarily about things, desegregation, getting rid of Jim Crow. And what's written out of that history is that so much of what formed the civil rights movement was activism by Black women against sexual violence against Black women by white men, and against the framing of Black men for sexual violence as a way to like justify like lynching and criminalization of Black men. In the book, Danielle McGuire spends a couple of chapters talking about the Montgomery bus boycott and how what really prompted the Montgomery bus boycott originally was that Black women were relentlessly harassed on buses in Montgomery, on segregated buses, overwhelmingly rode the bus because they were domestic workers and maids of different kinds, you know, doing that kind of work. And so they were, in general, Black people rode the bus much more than white people, and Black women especially rode the bus a lot. And there was just case after case of them being sexually harassed on buses and then raped by cops. The history of fighting and sexual violence against Black women really centered the bus and that it was those cases of those Black women who were called those names and experienced those kinds of touch and those kinds of assault that generated this and that the book is so beautiful. Her account of that, her story of who Rosa Parks actually was, which was that she was a longtime anti-rape activist in movements defending the humanity of Black women, not this little old lady who got tired one day and didn't want to move on the bus, which is this, you know, this amazingly depoliticized story of her life that's told in the mainstream. But the other part of the story of the Montgomery bus boycott is that it's not about these couple speeches made by Martin Luther King or, you know, other men. It's about how Black women coordinated rides and walked to work together and defended each other from all the white harassers who would harass them while they were walking to work during the boycott for over a year. These brigades of Black women who like like make all this food and then go all around town selling it to, in order to fund the carpools because they needed cars to carpool people who were going longer distances than could be walked. Like the mutual aid work, the work of just providing each other's rides was actually the center of what that boycott strategy was, not those speeches made by men. 
boycott was called for by women kind of claimed the leadership as soon as it like really took off, whatever. But I just say that because that's like a typical, like really famous story of um, social movement victory in U.S. history. I think it's not surprising that you, when you write out mutual aid, you often write out women because a lot of kind of that care work that is done in our movements that, you know, supporting people who are in prison right now, doing the child care, making the food happen, get making the rides happen. A lot of that is considered women's work in our culture, even though in, in social movements, you know, people of all genders do it. Women disproportionately do it. I share that story just because most of us have been told like a lot of lies about how social change happens. Those lies are common in our schools. Those lies have a reason. If you think that social change just comes from judges and legislatures and not like people doing a lot of stuff to save each other's lives in our communities, it's going to keep you demobilized. It's going to keep you less dangerous. It's going to make it seem like your only job is to wait till the next election or, you know, hope that a good judge makes a good decision and kind of like watch the news and wring your hands. They'd much rather have us doing that than like making serious trouble and changing each other's life chances and like building a new society in which people have what they need. So it's important that we, why have we heard about volunteering as charity and not as mutual aid? That's really, really like significant. And I'm so glad you're you know, sort of posing this question on your podcast. And the history that you're telling there, the history of enclosures is my history, right? I'm English originally. <laughs> so yeah, this is the history of where I come from. And I actually didn't know about the mutual aid response to that. I only heard the traditional stories of the enclosures and of course the workhouses that came after that as well. And so, okay, so you said a lot right there. And I think one thing that really stuck out to me was this idea that we have the idea where our culture kind of tells us, if you're not functioning well in our society right now, that that is because there is some kind of problem that you are having. Having. Most people who are listening to this podcast are parents. You know, we may be struggling. We may be struggling with our child's behavior. We may be struggling with feelings of overwhelm. And so we're told, well, clearly there's something wrong with you because everybody else is doing okay. And so if you could just kind of shift the way that you're showing up in this, then things will be better for you, right? You'll be able to function normally in our society. And I think you're absolutely right that what that does is completely ignores and basically says this whole structural thing that is the real reason why you're struggling is irrelevant and is there for not something that we should focus on changing. And yeah, I think that leads directly to what you said about, well, we just kind of, we wait for the next election and wring our hands because what else can we do? And that I see is the power of mutual aid. It's the thing to do <laughs> instead of waiting for the election. Is, is that how you see it all fit together? Yes, I think that it is. You know, one of the things mutual aid offers us is a chance to change the material conditions right now, as opposed to symbolic action. We're mostly encouraged to take symbolic action, post something on social media, read certain books or like certain things, wear a t-shirt, have a bumper sticker, like whatever it is, which I think is primarily symbolic action because you're like, are you going to vote for this wealthy candidate who represents wealthy interests or this wealthy candidate who represents wealthy interests? This person who's going to promote war or this person who's going to promote war? This person who's going to deport everybody or this person who's going to deport everybody? Like that, those have been our only choices while I've been alive for 45 years. Those kinds of things feel, I think, reasonably very dead end for a lot of us. I mean, like, what can I do about the Supreme Court? I can't do much about it. Literally, I can't do anything about it. And so the question is like, how could I feel like I could actually do something that makes any difference in like the suffering that is, you know, ubiquitous and that mutual aid is about that. It's like, oh, I could like create a new way of life with other people on my block right now. And so that the old people on my block were isolated and suffering in various ways that are common in a, in a society that abandons old people. You know, I think what you're saying too, I just want to, where I see, I'm not a parent, you know, very close to a lot of people who are, I see so many parents I know have so much 
guilt. I can't possibly do this right. And they feel guilt over things that are systemic and structural. You can't provide your kids that because you live in a society that, you know, where you have to work to make somebody else rich. And so you're working really, 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 really hard. You can't possibly have these things. Or you have to send your kid to a school that where like, it's really not working out for your kid. You don't have any other option. That's not you. That's like a collective problem. Your health needs aren't being met by a brutal healthcare system for profit. And you feel that and you don't have the energy or capacity to do some of the things you wish you could do with kids, you know, like just like, or you don't have childcare. So your kid's spending more time alone in front of a screen than you wish they were like these kinds of things that people I know feel guilty about that are just, like, you know, very individualized. It's in a society that's very blamey towards parents, like extreme, everyone judges parents. And obviously that is not done evenly. You know, there's so, so much evidence that, you know, black parents and indigenous parents and poor parents and parents with disabilities are much more likely like have their kids taken away from them in the system. Not everybody's parenting is under the same microscopes as everybody else. But I think that internalized feeling about being an inadequate parent seems nearly universal among people I know, except for really entitled sexist men who don't feel like any <laughs> obligation to parents. <laughs> but amongst people I know who are all, you know, struggling hard to try to provide their kids with like a beautiful, caring, held, loving experience inside utterly brutal society, the answer cannot be individual striving. It has to be collective action, empathy, compassion. And I think one of the things that a lot of people in our movements talk about, I spent my life in, you know, radical social movements, is how people will sometimes drop out of the movement when they become a parent. That is so messed up. And that's because we haven't figured out how to collectivize childcare and collectivize food. And collect, like, it's like if everyone's living in their own little house or their own little apartment, and we all have to do three meals a day for these kids plus all the snacks, and we all have to do, like, it's like historically people lived in larger groups and collectivize a lot of that labor. And it's really, really hard. And the reason we have to live in these tiny units is because a certain kind of industrialization made us have a certain set of wage jobs that where you had to be highly mobile. And it's also like a better better uh, consumer package. So like can sell us more stuff if we all have to have like a microwave and we all have to have a set of dishes and we all have to have a refrigerator, et cetera. It's really great for making us all have to work a ton and spend a ton. I think it's a really interesting question, not only that we need to fight for childcare and healthcare and these kinds of things more broadly in our society, but also that can we produce collective experiments and can we get involved in the ones that already exist in places like where you live in the Bay Area? There's plenty of examples of long-term people living collectively in collective houses, people doing collective childcare experiments, collective summer camp and other kinds of child schools. And, you know, just like, what are the options? So how do we get that kind of thing started? And I think that you have pointed out that people often come to the idea of mutual aid. They're introduced to it after some kind of crisis. Why is that? A lot of people see mutual aid at work for the first time after like, you know, a hurricane or like an earthquake or a flood or a fire, because I mean, I personally just think like sharing and connecting and generosity are, I believe they're human nature. Like they're human nature in the sense that humans could not have evolved without doing them. When there is a disaster or crisis, people try to help each other. They just do. And we live in a society that's told us that we're all like greedy and selfish and dangerous to each other. But I think that that narrating that in an extreme way and having lots and lots of media that shows us that way is part of actually trying to brainwash us into thinking that we want to be isolated and like protect our you know little horde with our guns. Things get really bad. People just share a lot. There's a really great Rebecca Solnit book called The Paradise Built in Hell that people love about that, where she just talks about, you know, histories of like, she talks about the San Francisco earthquake, I think in 1906 or whenever it was, the ways people just like came together and shared. But you just hear these everywhere, people rescuing each other in floods, et cetera. There is this thing that happens when there's a crisis, people share, people help each other, people rescue each other. I think that's also true for our long-term crises, like the long-term crisis of criminalization in the United States has been going on for a very long time. And it's been very, 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 very peaking for the last 40 or 50 years, especially 
and communities that are highly affected by criminalization, you see this. We People are running, you know, rides to the prison so people can go visit their loved ones. People are doing prison pen pal programs, right? These are you know, long histories of prison pen pal programs in, for example, queer and trans communities I'm part of because queer and trans people are so heavily criminalized, right? Or people are, you know, taking care of each other's kids while other people are locked up, like in, you know, it's a very typical thing to hear about extended families and neighbors in Black communities helping each other survive. Those kinds of crises is also true. Or the migration crisis, like communities organizing to do, you know, safety planning. So like, hey, if you get picked up in detention, who's going to take care of your elder or your kid? Are we going to have a phone tree about it? People sending money across borders, family member who's gotten deported, people doing that kind of rent parties, you know, this kind of taking care of each other is essential, is more essential to people living more at that edge of our like sort of long-term complex crises. So what you said at the beginning about middle or upper class and white might mean that some people are seeing less of that sharing in their lives, the more likely you are that you live close to the edge. It's, oh, wait, it's the end of the month. We all share this stuff. Or, oh, I lend you clothes to go to a job interview or whatever. That stuff is more likely in communities living those long-term crises. I mean, in some ways, that kind of essential sharing, that kind of mutual aid, everyone's experienced it somewhere in their life. You know, maybe it's that people share breast milk when someone can't breastfeed or, you know, like, like that's like a common one. People who are also your upper class have heard about in parenting communities. But I think it's also useful here to maybe point out some of the long-term organized histories of mutual aid in the U.S. that are really interesting. Like people talk a lot about Black mutual aid societies that existed both during slavery, like there'd be mutual aid societies organized to receive runaway slaves in Northern cities so that if someone shows up, you know, they've got literally nothing. How are we going to like make sure that they're housed, help them not get caught. So, you know, we don't want them to be out where they might be more easily caught. Mutual aid societies that would immigrants showing up at ports that would be like, okay, we all, you know, speak this language. We go every, you know, Wednesday when the ships show up or whatever it is. And we greet people because we're afraid people are going to get like taken advantage of, you know, killed or robbed as soon as they walk off the boat. They don't know the language. They don't know anybody. There was like long-term like groups that had like high involvement, you know, huge periods, you know, lots of really great historical research and things to read about those. Basically, you can see that with the definition of mutual aid I was talking about is when there's a crisis caused by something like slavery or by something like, you know, xenophobia and large numbers of people migrating maybe to get rid of away from war or, or to get rid of away from them, other harm they're facing, et cetera. When those crises are happening and those people know they're not, the government isn't going to rescue these people, or maybe it's the actual enemy, right? They need to have community fill that gap and save each other's lives. Like that's something people organize to do. And those organizations are also posing that crisis. We think it's wrong that people are enslaved and have to run away from it. We're trying to get rid of slavery. We're okay. I guess <laughs> so many different threads we could follow there. Coming back to what you said at the beginning, it seems to me it's almost like the disaster gives us permission to step outside of these tightly constrained boxes that we found ourselves in up to this point and to see, oh, there's another way of doing this. Clearly the government, all of its emergency planning is not going to come and save me right now. And so I'd better help myself and help other people too. And then I kind of linking from that, I was just thinking about New York Times article from a couple months ago, maybe a little longer ago, you were mentioning about kind of fleeing war and, you know, folks from Ukraine are coming into Eastern Europe and being welcomed with open arms and sort of, you know, people coming from further away, more who have darker skin, they're coming from Central Africa, who are kind of looking at like, wait, what? <laughs> the Ukrainians are being welcomed in with open arms and we've been standing here for a year or more now and, and you're doing everything you can to keep us out. And that just sparked a question in my mind. Is there a danger that mutual aid makes us rally around people who look like us, who act like us, who eat the same food as us and creates another kind of othering. What do you think about that? The very beginning of that question, you were talking a bit about the government's emergency planning, like not working. And I just want to mention that for a second. I should have said that earlier. Like part of the reason that mutual aid is so essential is that there hasn't ever been in the US and worse than ever, 
meaningful poor relief or disaster relief. Both of those things are designed terrible or the other way to think about it is they're yeah. working perfectly because making certain people richer and richer and other people more and more displaced and poor. So obviously our entire poor relief system is, you know, has always been very racially tiered and gendered and it just, just woefully inadequate and, and, you know, in many ways shreds, especially, you know, even just compared to European systems of um, social welfare. Yeah. In general, that thing doesn't work. And during particular crises, sometimes the U.S. has slightly expanded poor relief. Like when there was so much upheaval in the 1960s about anti-Black racism and like every city in America was on fire every summer, then they like slightly expanded welfare. And then as soon as that crisis went away, they like shrunk it again, you know, and you saw Bill Clinton's 1996 welfare reform that put a million kind of limits on welfare and really did that through a narrative about supposed welfare queens. That was a narrative about, you know, black women being bad and immoral and, and needing to be cracked down upon that was, you know, we st- we're still living with the consequences of, of that extreme narrowing of welfare. So part of the problem with state poor relief is that it's always like revocable and it's always inadequate and it's stigmatizing all of these things. And that's part of why it's so essential to create a system of mutual aid in which we actually take care of each other that doesn't destroy people's dignity and humanity and that doesn't you know create all these strings attached and choose who's deserving and undeserving. And with disaster relief, a lot of people woke up to this during Hurricane Katrina when FEMA failed so badly. But I don't think that most people know how much worse it's gotten since then. And like for example, how FEMA like didn't really show up at all for Hurricane Ida, like not even to get people tarps to put over their houses. I've heard a lot of accounts about how bad it's been and or with the fires in California or other disasters, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, obviously government does not show up. When it does show up, it gives very, very little and it gives it to people who are in less bad a crisis. I mean, everyone's in a crisis, but a lot of FEMA relief comes to homeowners. And it'll be like, like in Hurricane Sandy, what they offer homeowners was loans. Like the last thing you need when you've just been through disaster is a loan, like more debt. They offer things like that, that, but they'll offer nothing at all to people who were like already living in a trailer or already living in their car or already couch serving. And so you get through this like sort of sets of people who never receive any relief at all and who have lost everything and are even worse off and more displaced. There's been some really good journalism about this. Naomi Klein wrote about the campfire. And then she wrote like a few years later, like kind of what has happened. Um, homelessness has increased um, in Chico and other parts around where the campfire happened and how they eventually criminalized everybody who was still living in the Walmart parking lot at one point once more of the people who were somewhat middle class, had, you know, found another place to stay. You know, it's just like, the kind of endless like sorting and creating of more and more vulnerable like levels of poorer people. All of that to say, part of why this matters so much to me to talk about mutual aid right now is because we're just going to be seeing more disasters and crises of these kinds for the rest of our lives. The climate change is on and these conditions are just utterly worsening. We need to plan for that instead of pretending that that's a surprise. And so what is that? And I think that that our government is more and more oriented towards meeting disaster with armed response. They're likely to like send in people with guns, you know, try to control populations, but they're not likely to actually send in like ways to evacuate or, you know, ways to rebuild housing or things people actually need. And so we need to actually be prepared to assume the disasters are coming and to be practiced at how to care for each other at large levels immediately. And so we can practice that by being part of mutual aid projects right now and learning things like how do we make decisions together in big groups? How do we share stuff? How do we assess people's level of vulnerability? Like these are like, these are hard questions that we need practice at that like most of us have never been part of groups that are doing that. And so we need to work on it. And that relates to your question about like pain or about the idea that people are more sympathetic for some than others. In my experience, that's kind of like a typical charity mode who are the charismatic or like destigmatized people let's serve them first mutual aid projects have to look out for that because we can fall into that we could be like we care about the kids but not the adults we care about the you know that's a typical one we care about people who don't have a criminal record but we don't care about people who do or whatever 
What I find is when people actually do mutual aid work, a lot of that gets unlearned because what happens is, for example, people I know who got really upset and scared about Trump's immigration policies when they saw the stuff about like on the news about like, you know, immigrant kids in cages at the border. And they were like, I'm so mad. I'm going to get involved in the local migrant justice work in my town. And they get involved in, let's say, a hotline that people can call who are in the detention center in the region and, you know, to report conditions or they get involved supporting families of detainees, things like that. And once they get into that work, oh, I actually really care about adults too. I also don't think adults should be going through this. And also, wow, I never knew that like black migrants experience like particular harms in this because they're more heavily policed. Or I actually didn't realize what it's like for trans migrants in these detention centers. Or I actually didn't know what happens to migrants with disabilities. So you're basically, you're, by doing the work, your solidarity expands. You learn a lot more complexity about the issue, which is like a really beautiful process that by actually getting involved, you go beyond what's in the headlines, if anything or what someone had something that happened to you or someone you know, to like the parts you didn't know. And then I think people often have a tendency to be, well, obviously we should do triage with those who are in the most crisis first. That's very ethical to be like, you know, if, if a bunch of us just got in a car accident, let's see who's might not be breathing before we like do the cuts and scrapes, you know? And so I've seen is that there is, I think, an ethical tendency in mutual aid work for people, even if they start out with some of those beliefs about who's the most appealing person in crisis, they often come to like, oh, who's got the most complex and difficult and dangerous conditions and who's nobody else helping? Because a lot of times what mutual aid projects are is like, yeah, there's, you know, some kind of in our town, there's some kind of support for tenants to get some legal help, but they won't help you if you're undocumented and they won't help you if you don't have the rent arrears and they won't help you if you don't have a lease. And so then the mutual aid project, that's a little more like scrappy and it's all volunteer and it's not a nonprofit. It maybe does bolder tactics like it protests at landlords' houses. They'll take anybody. They'll help anybody. You know what I mean? They'll help people who nobody else will help. So I think that's just kind of another, I think, beautiful tendency in people doing this organizing. And that doesn't mean it never happened. I think a lot about in the period, maybe around 2010, when there was like the foreclosure crisis after you know, 2008, all that people were doing that work where there was a really beautiful mutual aid work happening where people were taking over foreclosed properties and putting unhoused people in them. This is happening all over the United States, like amazing projects. And some of those projects said, we do this with you if you're a drug user. And so that actually mirrored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in a way, it's not surprising, right? Since it's the way we grew up with, it's the model we've had. <laughs> it's not surprising that until we unlearn that, that we would go ahead and replicate that in the kinds of new systems that we're setting up. And I think so many of the examples that you're giving are related to capitalism, right? It's disasters to some extent, because we kind of see things as these things as natural disasters, and we ignore that there are economic and social factors that underpin who is affected by disasters. But even the disasters of Side, there's sort of this ordinary disaster of capitalism. And I ran a survey in my community recently to figure out what people knew about patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. And most folks knew what patriarchy and white supremacy were and had some sense of how they show up in their families. Most people didn't really know so much about what capitalism was and kind of saw it as a either a neutral to slightly beneficial system. I think you probably see it a bit differently than that. <laughs> Can you help us see how is capitalism creating these conditions that mean that mutual aid is the response that we need to have to be able to survive? 
Yeah, this is such a giant question. I hope what I'm going to say is useful. No, I love this question. It's so important. Basically, what I would say if someone was like asked me in an elevator, what is capitalism? I would say throughout most of human history, people survived by sharing and collaborating. And there was very little hierarchical difference inside people's like human groups. It wouldn't make sense in terms of the group survival to have anyone put in a cage their life during their life. It wouldn't make sense to have anyone have a giant pile of goods or belongings while other people starved. It was just like, let's all collaborate to get by. And sometimes there were like ceremonial roles or whatever, but we tend to look back and like look at people's, look at any of those markers and think it meant the same thing it means now. And it didn't. So for the most of human history, people lived with like a much, much, much greater, like basic equality of the basics of having what you need. And the goal of the group was to make sure everybody survived and had what they needed. And that was, and only very recently in human history, have we had systems that where very small numbers of people who we might call elites controlled the conditions of life of very large numbers of people. You know, where a small number of people, we're going to make everyone go to war, work under conditions that break their bodies. A few people are going to get really wealthy from that. And the people who are doing the work are going to barely be able to survive and it's going to shorten their lives. How do you organize everyone to agree to that? And that's what we live under. We live under a thing where like a very small number of people have almost everything and you know, globally, and that's gotten like way worse during my lifetime, way worse. Like it's really bad globally, right? It's really bad domestically also. And that's, you know, racialized and gender and all those things. And colonialism really made that happen. And, um, you know, slavery and many things make that happen. The things that I think, you know, your listeners know about. And that system puts us in a position where it's like, if I don't go to work, I could like have nowhere to live. I could starve. Right. And so that is really intense. It controls our day-to-day so thoroughly. I don't have a say in where my energy comes from and like where my clothes come from. I have to participate in all these really horrible systems. Like, oh, my clothes are made in sweatshops. Oh, my food came through a fossil fuel dependent system. Ah, the energy I'm using was from coal. And I have like no choices. And I don't even know who makes those choices. Like all the choices that my life are made by people I've never met who are really far away and who I've never even heard of. And then there's like kind of a, the government's right. There's a faux thing. <laughs> this like pretend thing where I supposedly have a say, a say, I can vote for which of two wealthy candidates who will represent the interests of those people I've never heard of who actually control my energy and my food and my water, and my transportation. Capitalism is like the name for like an economic system. Most of us have to sell our time and labor to like oil for somebody else making all the money. And like the way that I talk to my students about this is I'm like, you know, imagine you're like in the factory and you're making, issues you've never met your boss or whatever or like whoever owns this is like you know a million million miles away from you on all levels and you all look around each other like oh wow we make the shoes we make the shoes they're paying us as little as possible per hour and skimming as much as possible like what if we kept the wealth in the hands of people who make the shoes and who make the leather it's useful to look at people who've like taken back their factories like all over the world like you know when people do factory takeovers and workers take over factories feeling that we don't have enough it's not true like the poverty or like gap or scarcity we all live in is artificially produced by a system of domination very centrally creates a system of private property that says like this factory isn't ours the, pl- the house where i live isn't mine like it belongs to somebody else or to a company like it's just a f- set of fictions right private property is just like a set of fictions that are enforced by police and militaries it's a set of fictions with a really heavy you know gun behind it and we all live under it and then we live in this realm where we're like part of the reason i think people think it's good is all these mythologies that people are naturally greedy and so we need the system to protect us we need all the that what these guns are doing is protecting us from each other when actually they're protecting like the elites from us of being like hey wait why do you have everything and i don't have anything and i have to do this work right or we also live under a mythology that property is natural which 
there's no evidence of that um, historically. Like that's not, it's actually like a very new small idea that people had to be like forced into. There's lots of great things to read about that. Part of what that feels like on a day-to-day is like being told what to desire. Like we have all these consumer desires. We're like, maybe that will make me happy. Maybe if my family had that house, maybe if I had those clothes, maybe if I looked that way, if I had that body, that's like the currency that like keeps us in our places and keeps us striving inside like these really crappy systems. Like maybe I'll be the one who climbs a little higher in that system. And maybe those things will make us happy, even though of course we know they don't make us happy at all. And I think parents are pretty good at telling children like that video game won't make you happy. That candy won't make you happy, but we're not very good at telling ourselves climbing. This will not ever make me happy. I'm deeply alienated and sad and isolated by this. And so part of the reason that like mutually is really significant is because it reminds us, I think of who we really are. Like it reminds us like we naturally share, we're naturally connective. We desire belonging and safety and creativity and like the dignity of standing up for ourselves more than we desire like that shiny bauble. And so mutual aid is a chance to practice like, oh, I'm with other people in my community. We're doing something we believe in. This is a kind of satisfaction I will never get from a consumer desire. And it's like hard, but also people really have my back. Like now I'm friends with people who are different from me. These people who would like visit me if I was sick. You know, there's like a level of isolation in our society that is at its peak right now. Like more people live alone than I've ever lived alone in human history. You know, more people report they don't have a single person to confide good or bad news in, or a lot of people are isolated. The only other person they're really close to is just their romantic or sexual or co-parenting partner. And that's very unhealthy for those relationships to, to just be stuck in them in isolation. Capitalism produces all of that. And we're also told that capitalism is what creates innovation and that there wouldn't be like new cool science and stuff without capitalism. It's just not true. It's like it actually prevents innovation because things can only be developed for like military or profit purposes. We could have a million amazing, interesting, thoughtful ways of developing playgrounds or childcare or healthcare. Anybody could have done a better job than capitalists making sure that COVID was treated, that the vaccines came out and that they were distributed all over the world. Instead, a few people got extremely rich from the way COVID was handled and COVID was not handled, right? Like, so, and, you know, the deaths continue. And so the way I guess I would think about capitalism or encourage people to think about capitalism is just like, it's a complex system of domination that kind of sets us against our own interests, makes us think there's no alternative. Like one of its big messages is that this is the only way it can be, which is just not true because it's been a million other ways forever everywhere and tells us not to trust ourselves or each other. And so that we can basically be controlled by a system that ultimately benefits a very tiny set of elites. The opposite thing that I want is I want to live in a world in which we collective self-determination is how we run things. Like if people in our sector of the city want our energy not to come from fracking or coal, that we can like work together to sort that out, figure out what a mini grid would be and a giant energy company determining this forest that starts fires because it doesn't maintain its infrastructure, right? Or that we could, you know, be working together on food systems that are far more local and not fossil fuel dependent. Like all of that is prevented by um, like uh, the ways that capitalism controls, like, you know, like every resource and like people. And so there's also, I just want to say like, most of us haven't gotten to say the resistance to capitalism that is existed the entire time that anyone's been trying to make capitalism. And that is beautiful. And that is happening all the time everywhere. And for me, studying resistance movements, contemporary and historical is really, really, really helpful and relieving to my nervous system and to my fears about like, oh my God, it's so bad. How will we ever get out of it? Like, I think a lot of people want to throw up their hands and be like, it's hopeless. We'll never have it. But it's like everyone who's ever lived in any system thought that was the only system. <laughs> and they come and go because people practice otherwise. And also like we can practice otherwise together during it and create pockets of other outcomes. Like we can actually help people in our communities have things they need that they can't get Mm -hmm. under this system. And we can do that like right now. We don't have to wait. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Is capitalism going to entirely end in my life? 
I have no way of knowing that it doesn't really matter. It's like what's happening right now in my city Mm -hmm. to, you know, young people who don't have housing, what's happening right now, where do I want to plug in? Anywhere is the right place to start. Mm, Okay. As we sort of head towards a conclusion, I had queued up a couple of questions and now I think I'm seeing that they're even more related. So I I wanted to know kind of what does mutual aid look like? I am actually realizing that um, we call it not school. My child's not in school. We're homeschooling and she's part of a sort of a care collaborative and realizing that their model is shifting and it's increasingly becoming what essentially seems to me to be mutual aid and that, you know, how decisions are made and what it looks like, how those decisions are being made is very, very different from what it would be if we were in school where you're told what school's going to look like and when you're going to show up and there's no alternative to that system once you've decided to be in it. So I want to get a sense for sort of what mutual aid looks like. I'm curious about kind of healing, what mutual aid is like in healing. What I'm seeing in what you're saying is that through being in mutual aid systems, I can work to heal myself. Like being involved in this is healing to me. And I guess if I can piggyback one more thing on that, I'm wondering how you avoid burnout when there are so many things you probably, I've seen the list of things that you're involved in on your website. So I wonder, can you tackle that broad package of questions? Totally. Yeah. The term mutual aid, we people surviving through sharing that aspect of mutual aid. But in terms of mutual aid, like what we mean today by like when people are in groups that are like, we're going to provide each other's basic survival needs with a shared understanding that the system creates these needs and with an invitation to collective action. What I mean by that is usually people in groups that can be, you know, as small as three people and as big as, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people or more coordinating to meet a need. We're going to give where unhoused people are living, or we're going to uh, hang out outside the jail and support people who are being released to make sure they have a ride and don't get arrested again and have some food and, you know, can make calls or, you know, whatever it is. We're going to do prison pen pal letters, whatever. What that looks like is those people who are in that group or in that mutual aid group, they are coordinating together. We're working together to identify like, what do we agree about like a shared problem that we feel urgency around? How do we want to do it? Are we going to do it on Wednesdays? Are we going to do it on Tuesdays? Are we going to do, you know, it's going to be weekly, it's going to be monthly. Are we going to meet on Zoom? Are we going to meet in person? Like these kinds of things, like they have to make a structure together. And and I think a key thing that you're saying is mutual aid is best done, not hierarchical. And it's really hard because almost all of us have only been in hierarchical groups and decision-making spaces, families where parents or dads or whatever in charge, schools where it's principals or superintendents, you know, bosses at jobs, landlords, you know, everywhere you go, you're just either in the role of dominating others or you're like, keep your head down and obey. And those are kind of the two things we're conditioned to. So that's part of what we have to heal from is that those are the only ways we know how to be is either like my way or the, I'm going to get to the top of this thing. I'm going to make other people do my way, or I'm going to be quiet and keep my head down. And what we want in mutual aid groups is to have everyone's wisdom. We want everyone to, hey, if you know that Tuesdays is a bad day because that's the day the other group meets, tell us, you know, or if you know that doing it this way will actually exclude people with disabilities from <laughs> participating, tell us, you know. And so we want to create group spaces in which, which there's not a hierarchy, which we're in also because hierarchies tend to replicate societal ones. So if we have a, a president and a committee chair and a whatever, we're likely to just see whiteness and maleness and higher ed and whatever, you know, raised to the top, right? And so we really want to create a space in which, especially if we want to make sure that our group includes people who are experiencing different levels of stigma and vulnerability and serves people who are experiencing those levels, we want to make sure that the wisdom of people experience as many of those things as possible is front and center because those people are going to know how that system is landing on them, what would make this work for them or not work for them, et cetera. So we want to create a way of making decisions together and communicating that isn't hierarchical. 
And so people often structure that as a collective. They use consensus decision-making. I think consensus decision-making really, that idea intimidates a lot of people. They're like, oh my God, it would be so hard for us all to decide things together. All that means is that like someone brings a proposal and you talk about it until you can make it something everyone can live with. That's all that means. People do this in their friendships all the time. I'm like, yeah, you know, let's meet for dinner. And you're like, oh, cool. How about Tuesday? I'm like, can you do Wednesday or Thursday? Okay, how about Wednesday? And then I'm, do you want to go to a place in the corner? Oh, no, I'm not eating that right now. How about if we go to the other place? Okay, yeah, okay. That's consensus decision making. Proposal, iron it out. So you just do that in groups, which requires you to gain some skills. It doesn't have to be exactly the way I imagined it. I don't have to get my, if I brought the proposal, I don't have to be wedded to it. I don't have to be like, this is Dean's proposal. I can be like, oh yeah, I brought this proposal and the group talked about it a bit. We realized there's some research questions and then like, oh, Jen's going to take and go like figure out what the real deal is with renting those kind of cars or whatever. Like it, I'm not, I have to get Dean's proposal through. I'm going to browbeat everyone and it's a victory. And if you disagree with me or bring up any questions, then I'm insecure. We have to learn this other thing, which I call desiring others' participation. What would it be like if in groups I was, I actually want to hear people disagree with me and bring other perspectives because that'll make the thing smarter. Like that will make us wiser. That's a skill. And I think that's a form of healing. It's, it's healing a kind of insecurity that we've been given by society where everyone's climbing or falling on these like steep, steep, you know, brutal ladders where at the bottom there's a fear of death. So that's a big part of it is that non-hierarchical structure, clarity and transparency. Most of us have worked only in systems where there's no transparency. You don't know where the money comes from. You don't know how the decisions are made at your job. Most nonprofits are like that too. And so instead this is, oh yeah, we're going to all be super, super clear. Oh yeah. If somebody donated 50 bucks. We spent it on the, these water bottles and tents, you know, or whatever. The other thing is like mutual aid groups really, really need to be open to new members. If it's just a few of us, we will get burnt out or like, oh, I had a baby and then, oh, you got sick. And so now there's like two people trying to make food for 50 people once a week, you know, it's not going to work. So how to make a group where new people could enter, really know what's going on. We understand how we make decisions together. And there's a lot of like guidance in my book about how to do this stuff. If people are like kind of looking for the short and sweet. And on my website, there's also a bunch of videos about ironing out some of the things people tend to run into. The healing piece is really, you know, I'm so glad you asked that. I firmly believe that we experience our wounding in groups mostly in our family group and also in schools and jobs, like that's where our wounding happens. And it's wounding where we feel not belonging, where we feel not safe, where we feel that we don't have our autonomy or we don't have enough accompaniment, where we feel our humanity is questioned or we don't have dignity. So healing to be in groups where we feel something else. Oh, I was listened to. Oh, people really saw me. Oh, people included me. We were part of something we cared about together. And I, I was like proud to be part of this group and they were proud to have me. All of those things can be you know, such a relief, not to mention deeper stuff. I don't think most of us have had experiences of being hurt, having someone give a sincere apology and then give a sincere forgiveness and let it go. Like that is a beautiful arc that I feel very lucky to have experienced in my life. Most of us, it's like conflict is terrifying. We never bring it up. We hold secret resentments. It's because we live in a prison-based society that's like super, you know, mm -hmm. afraid to let people mistakes and it feels like everything's super high stakes. And so it's amazing to be in groups where you can be like, oh, hey, like the way you keep saying that, it's rough on me. It's like not the language my community uses. Or when you don't show up to the meetings on time, I feel like you don't value my time. And then someone can be like, oh, wow, I did not know I was having that impact. I am so sorry. I'm going to think about how I can do that differently. And cool. I feel hurt. Having those experiences changes your emotional capacity. So I think in a lot of the mutual aid groups that I, you know, have been part of, and I, and I work with a lot of groups, you know, that are trying to sort out struggles, learning how to give and receive direct feedback, learning how not to gossip, learning how to forgive, learning how to be humble and listen to people, learning how to listen to somebody, even if they don't deliver it in your favorite way, you know, like all of that stuff. These are skills we just don't have living in a society that's about 
you know, being dominated in most of our relationships or, or, or trying to dominate. And the question about burnout, a lot of people feel burnt out in general by a society in which rents are higher than they've ever. People work incredibly long hours, incredibly long, much longer than have people have worked in the past. There's no support for childcare. You know, people are living with unaddressed health needs because the healthcare system is so terrible, et cetera. The stress of living like with the constant imminent you know, emergencies and crises and seeing the suffering of others and all of it. I think that sometimes the response is this thing that's capitalism's message, which is you need to rest, go watch TV, go take substances, go on a tropical vacation. I don't think those things are actually restorative for people. I really don't. And what I see in myself mm-hmm. and others, I think that we have no idea what we find restorative. We Most of us are completely unable to find solitude, silence, connection to nature, how to settle our nervous systems. Instead, I'm watching a terrifying movie to relax. Like what? What I notice is that community work I'm involved. It's hard. It can include conflict. It includes being close to different kinds of suffering. Sometimes there's been a lot of death in a lot of the groups that I'm in because people are very vulnerable. And I still feel it's restorative to me. I ask myself, Hmm. when does this feel exhausting? Like, oh, I'm tired and I need to rest. And when does it feel like it's draining or toxic? You know, because workplaces are often draining and toxic and dating and love relationships are frequently dating and toxic. I think the question is, can I be involved in work in my community, especially unpaid work? Because of course, you know, the bulk of the work we need to do to create a new society is going to be unpaid because why would our opponents, who are people all the money, pay us to do this? How can unpaid work, the feeling I can have in is like, I'm really choosing to be here. Sweet. I'm on purpose. Right now I'm feeling my shared purpose with others in this room that we don't want anyone to be evicted or that we want everyone to have loving parenting or that we want everyone to have whatever it is we're working on, right? How we want everyone to eat some delicious food on Sunday, whatever it is. Like, how can I feel my purpose? And then I notice that I have a ingrained habit from living in capitalism of avoidance. I, you know, it probably started when I was going to school as a kid, like, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to do this homework, you know? And then it's like, oh, I'm at work. I'm like, I don't want to do this spreadsheet or because you're being forced to do a bunch of stuff. So you get this super deep embodied habit of avoidance. And so one of the things I try to do is what does avoidance feel like? You know, like for me, it's like, oh, like I just like collapse in the body, slump, oh, you know, like tired, my head to the side. Everyone's going to feel that differently in their body. It could be like a, a feeling of backing up, whatever it is. And then I'm like, what does being on purpose feel like in my body? Like for me, being on purpose is I feel something kind of upright and I feel kind of like an upward motion and I'm, I want to go forward with others. And what do I have to do before I do any task or before I go to this meeting or before I sit down and fill out the spreadsheet I'm working on for my mutual aid project about, you know, who's going to call who, when, or who's going to stay at what, whose house. How do I feel purpose when I do the ordinary mundane work of mutual aid, changing a diaper, chopping an onion, whatever? Like, how do I do that? And so for me, that's like an active process, which I've worked on over the years to try to recover from burnout slash avoidance vibes that I actually bring for good reason, no blame or judgment, but that I'm often bringing. So, because Going to work at my job where someone makes money off me shouldn't feel the same as going to my mutual aid project, but it might. And that's not my fault. And my job is just then to be conscious of that. Actually, doing social movement work in my community does not increase my burnout. If I can orient to, yeah, am I part of creating non-toxic vibes here? Am I part of remembering why I'm here and feeling connected to others? Can I walk into this meeting and look around and actively try to feel my belonging? Instead of just hoping someone will deliver my belonging to me, you know, like, can I actively feel my connection to others? What do I need to do? Do I want to to call folks more? Do I want to text folks? What do I want to do to make this feel like what it is, which is saving each other's lives? But it might not because we all have these habits, you know, from this other experience of society. So I think that the question of burnout, when people are like, I can't do social movement work because of burnout, I just want to kind of get in there a little more complexity. Social movement work is healing and is essential. And 
also all powerful social movements for liberation that have ever happened were done by people who were living under the worst conditions. They were tired. They were living with substandard housing. They didn't have enough food. Their kids were being killed. The people who have fought the hardest for liberation and freedom, like from the colonizer against wars, et cetera, have always been those on the losing end. They've had the most skin in the game. Who am I to say, I'm too tired to do social movement work? You know, yes, like take care of ourselves, have an assessment about our well being. Yes, I feel like there's a too early stop there for a lot of people. What can I do in my life generally to switch, shift a lot of my like energy toward this from other places where I might burning myself out? with like toxic entertainment or with really horrifyingly bad relationships. Like I'm, you know, endlessly, you know, butting my head against like kind of like, is there any way that I can be crafting my life so that I have energy for the things that I think actually going to save our lives instead of only feeling kind of and stopping the question with I'm tired from living in this brutal society. Yes, we are. Of course we are. And like having compassion for that and then just continuing to be curious about what could generate in me opportunities to build beautiful, enlivening, connective collaboration with others for justice. Mm, which also brings a sense of agency, right? Like I'm not just sitting in the system waiting to vote, <laughs> waiting for somebody else to change these circumstances that are holding me down, that I can have the agency to be the architect of my life. You know, yes, I still have to go to work. And also, I can be around people who care about the same things as I do, and I can make sure that they see my needs for childcare and that we all provide food when we get together so that we don't have to cook that night and have this interaction be something that is generative to us rather than something that feels like, oh, it's another thing I have to do. Can I say one more thing about that thing about waiting yeah. for others? I just want to say, like, I think a lot of people in the United States have a fantasy that the government is going to solve our problems. Sometimes. Yeah. And I just want to be real. It's absolutely not going to happen. If you have any questions, the Democrats won, Biden has the presidency, he is supporting more people. We are nowhere on climate. We're, it's all still getting worse. He is pro-war on every level. We're not about to have an electoral system where we could elect anybody who's not one of those. That is what is happening. That's been happening my entire life. Time's up for waiting for people to save us. And I think it's very hard, especially for parents I know, to confront how dire this situation is, especially the climate situation, and that it is not going to improve in your children's lifetime. So the only question now is, how do we prepare for each coming emergency and build as much like strong, bold resistance that could stop projects like pipelines and could stop wars as possible? Our only job is to be involved in that. And if that it's uncomfortable to look frankly at how no one is coming to save us and how actually everyone in charge is hastening our demise. But if we do care about young people and future generations, it is essential to just take off the blinders and apply ourselves to the current immediate tasks, which are, there's not like, a, oh no, what do I do? It's all over the map. Every single one of us lives in a community where we can be doing housing justice activism, where we can be doing anti-war activism, where we can be trying to defund the police. Where, like this work, the menu is has been laid out like by many, 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 many generations of movements, by brilliant people. And what's missing in these movements is people power. We need tens of millions of people to be involved if we're going to win because the opposition has all the money and all the guns. So it's like, we don't need like the next brilliant nonprofit report and we don't need the next election where you do the right voting. That is not going to cut it. That's my plea to people who are listening to your podcast, like, like let ourselves feel that urgency and then do the experiments that are needed to be involved in the immediate.
Yeah. And as a final nugget, how would you go about finding out where a mutual aid group is in your community if you have no idea where to even start looking for this? Yeah. One resource is mutualaidhub.org. There's so many mutual aid groups, they're not all on there, but at least it's like a map. And so you can find where your city is on that or your town and find something nearby. And then you could just message and you might find that some of the groups have collapsed since they posted on there or they're hard to reach or whatever. Just like, you know, just dig around. Like just, I would just message those groups that are anywhere near where you live. What do you know anything that's going on where I live? Or can I get involved in what you're doing from a little bit afar? You can also always be involved in things like prison pen pal programs that you, where you don't have to be in the same place as the people you're writing to. Um, so that's one option. Also, there's a really great media outlet called It's Going Down. And they have another whole set of lists of mutual aid projects and mutual aid groups. And they also have a podcast with lots of detailed accounts of people doing mutual aid, which I love that because then you get like inspired, like, oh, how do they do it? What's it like? How's it working? Mm -hmm. So I think that's really useful. You know, I think if people are living in towns, like almost every town, there's like terrible sweeps of homeless encampments happening. And there's people doing amazing work to support people in homeless encampments. And they just need more people help pack before the cops come. So people don't lose their prescription glasses when they get evicted from this park and move down to the other park that will be evicted from next week. There's just so much happening. Mm -hmm. But definitely everywhere that you live, somebody's trying to defund the police. Somebody's supporting unhoused people in your town. Somebody is doing things about tenants who are being evicted. Like those kinds of basic were common and disaster relief. I mean, the other thing is that in your own block doing disaster preparation, you are doing that with other people in your city and especially in neighborhoods where people are less likely to have the things they need. Like if it's really hard to store, like for those of us who live in earthquake places, like it's really hard to store water if you're living in really tiny apartments. So are there ways to co collaborate across multiple blocks to make mm -hmm. sure that there's enough water stored across those blocks for all the people who are living? Just like, do people have solar batteries? Are there old people living around who have, you know, or people with disabilities who have devices that they need to survive that require electricity? Because the lights are definitely going out in the company for short periods and for long periods. Disaster prep is something any of us can start a group to do anywhere we are. It could be at our workplace. It could be in our block or in our, you know, if we're living in the county, it could be doing it with neighbors across a broader region, that kind of stuff. Everyone you talk to who lives somewhere where the big disaster comes or I wish I'd done the disaster prep. Let's not be those people, you know, who didn't do it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I'm leaving this conversation with such a sense of hope. <laughs> it's really cool to see how some of the things I'm doing are already heading in this direction and how much more there is to be involved in that doesn't have to be draining and something that I have to do, but that can be actually generative to me the way that I'm living my life. So thank you so much for writing the book and for being here with us today. I'm so grateful. Thanks for having me. And so listeners can find the references for all the papers that I read in preparation for today's conversation, as well as a link to Dean's book, Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next. And I'll also track down all of the books that Dean has mentioned during our conversation today. And all of that will be available at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash mutual aid. Hi, this is Jenny from Los Angeles. We know that you have a lot of choices about where you get information about parenting, and we're honored that you've chosen us as we move toward a world in which everyone's lives and contributions are valued. If you'd like to help keep the show ad-free, please consider making a donation on the episode page that Jen just mentioned. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Don't forget to head to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash record the intro to record your own messages for the show.